Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. Jonathan, I I want to break up. But why? Why, why are you doing this? Because you're an... You know what that is? That's begging the question. A phrase you frequently misuse, by the way. Saying you don't want me because I'm... Simply restates the premise. By definition, nobody wants to be with... It's circular, shallow reasoning, as opposed to... I'm sorry about that. It's it's only a surface wound. My therapist told me I should buy a gun and shoot you whenever you're being an ass. Your therapist told you to shoot me? What kind of a therapist says that? A therapist should help you stop shooting people. Are you sure this wasn't an idea one of your stupid friends came up with? I just took off a part of your earlobe. And don't dump on my friends. That's such an thing to do. But what's the point of shooting me? Because, Jonathan, nothing else works. I've tried pointing out the ways you're entitled, how, how you're you're blind to my needs, you're totally selfish in bed, hypercritical, and completely indifferent to any of my responses. Being an <coughs> was so deeply ingrained in you that nothing I did moved the needle. So shooting me is supposed to help me change. No. It just feels really good. What if I promise to stop being such an You can't stop. I understand that now. You need to find somebody else. Somebody who would actually benefit from being with an Somebody who can only grow and thrive through regular contact with an what, what kind of person would that be? I honestly cannot imagine. Maybe they'll explain it on this show. And now the American David Frost, Colin McEnroe. Yeah, actually, poor David Frost... Uh, way, way back uh, when I was a teenager, National Lampoon used to have a letters to the editor page, and it almost invariably featured a letter, a fake letter from David Frost, in which he would admit to being uh, an A-word uh, and and either complain about that or talk about ways in which life had shortchanged him because he was such a thing. So uh, I have to, before I even get going here, I have to introduce you to the idea of the show. And, and I guess also say that this is uh, we're going to talk about a word that we typically don't say on public radio. We're not going to say it maybe more than once on public radio today. It it in itself is a, a complicated word. It's a, a, a bubble word in a way. It's a, a word that probably wouldn't get you fined by the FCC. Uh, on the other hand, it's not a word that people who listen to public radio are accustomed to hearing. Uh, so we've kind of just decided not to say it. Uh, and there are lots of substitutes. I've been practicing all day uh, substituting a word and and also a-hole, although, as you'll hear from this clip, there's sort of a problem with a-hole. This is from Risky Business, and it's uh, I have to set it up a little bit. Um, Tom Cruise, the young Tom Cruise, plays a young man named Joel. He's a high school student who's gotten involved with prostitutes and, and with a... Um, well, this guy named Guido, the killer pimp, uh, and, and he's in over his head. And at one point, Guido arranges for all of the furniture in his uh, parents' house to be stolen. And so Joel, uh, Tom Cruise, uh, calls Guido. They took everything. This is unbelievable. My parents are going to be back in two hours, Lena, and they took everything. Look, I don't know if you know anything about this, but you got to call me back right away. I'm at the house, KL5-2121. Okay, okay. you really got to help me. I'm in your life, huh, kid? Where's Lena? Maybe she's on the choo-choo. 
Well, I hear she's got this thing about choo-choos. Listen, I want to know who took my stuff. Oh, I took your stuff, Joe. Are you kidding? Well, then you listen to me, Buster. You, you a-hole. All right, that's the great Joey Pans as Guido, uh, and the uh, point being, you're dealing with a dangerous criminal. You don't use a euphemism or, or whatever that is, uh, like a-hole. But we're, anyway, we're going to talk about this word. We're not going to talk about it as a word, though. We're going to talk about it the way it's applied to people, the kind of people that it is applied to. Uh, and so I'm going to say the word once, and the only reason I'm going to do this is, A, because Terry Gross did it when she did her show, but also because I've been in public radio long enough to know that if I don't do this, I'll get at least one email from somebody saying they didn't know which word we were talking about. I'm not making this up either. This This will happen. I, I just know the audience out there. So, so, But if you don't want to hear this word, if you are troubled by this word, put your fingers in your ear for like three and a half seconds. The word is asshole, all right? We're probably not going to say it again for the rest of the show. Although people make mistakes, there might be a slip. We'll try to control this as best we can. So um, I should have just saved it for the title of the book by our main guest here today. Aaron James is the author of A-Words, A Theory, and uh, it's uh, A-Words, A Theory, and then it's follow-up. Um, a words, a theory of Donald Trump. Um, you know, that's not really necessarily the reason we're doing the show today. On the other hand, well, we'll get we'll get to the timeliness of it as we go along. He's joining us from the studios of KUCI at the University of California, Irvine, where he's a professor and chair of the philosophy department. I would like to say also that, that in, in his book, uh, A Words, A Theory, uh, all of this is sort of run through the prisms of Hegelian preludes and Rawlsian uh, theories of social and economic justice. Uh, it isn't just uh, a book about A words. So um, it's a lot more than that. So uh, first of all, Aaron James, um, Welcome to our show. Thanks. Very nice to be with you. Sorry for the long Hegelian prelude. Um, so I, I guess we have to begin, and I know you can do this in your sleep, um, but uh, well, I think we have to begin by defining our terms. So for your purposes, when we use this word, what or who are we talking about? Right. So I, I think that the term as we now use it comes to pick out a certain type of moral personality um, at least when we're using it in sort of the central case. And so, um, you know, being a philosopher, I sort of tried to define the type, um, so to define the term. And so the idea is, my suggestion is that the the A word, the proper A word, is the guy, it's usually a man, a man but not only men, the guy who takes helps himself to special advantages in cooperative life out of an entrenched sense of entitlement that immunizes him against the complaints of other people, and and so there are some other aspects to that. But um, but but and to break it into the three parts that you use, yes, he allows himself to enjoy special advantages and does so not occasionally, but as a matter of habit, um, and, and because he believes that somehow or other uh, he believes that he's entitled to it, or he's blind to the notion that he might not be entitled to it. Uh, and the fact that it bothers other people somehow or other doesn't get through to him or doesn't mean anything to him. Um, let's talk about this him for a second. Um, is is it the case simply that this type of person exists more uh, in people who have a Y chromosome, or is it the case that, that society has its own language, its own language that involves 
And I have no idea why we can say the word bitch on the radio, but we can't say the word uh, a word on the radio. But we have words like bitch in, in a much less worse, a much more terrible uh, um, anatomical word for women who are bothering us or women we find tr- troublesome. Is, is it that, you know, that we've somehow or other uh, done a kind of um, vocabulary apartheid with the sexes? Or is it a behavioral thing that crops up in men more? Yeah, when I defined the term initially, I was I was open to the idea that the term might just apply only to men, um, but by definition, that is, it could be like the word bachelor. Uh, you know, we just use the term only to apply to men. It doesn't sort of it's not coherent, or it's a misuse of words to say that a woman is a bachelor or that a man is a spinster. So the term could be sort of essentially gender tagged, at least I thought. But then I thought, um, you know, of a clear cut example, um, Ann Coulter who seemed to me to qualify as an A-word. Um, and, you know, even if you don't think she is, in fact, an A-word, it definitely didn't seem a misuse of words or a confusion to think that she is. It, it would be confused to say she's a bachelor, um, but, you know, it's an interesting possibility to think of her as uh, as an A-word. So, uh, you know, so the term isn't essentially, essentially gendered. It just turns out, I think, that it's an interesting fact that we tend to use the term uh, for 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 men, um, and so then there's an interesting question of why is it that the people who become a words tend to clump up um, over on the sort of male side of the gender divide? Um, they they there could be more women who are a words, but then why is it that why is it the case that there are so few of them? Right, and some of that may have to do with the fact that this word has something to do with the aggregation of power. Um, and, and I, you know, another part of it, actually, before we get back to that, I want to come back to Ann Coulter for a second. So you wrote your original book in 2012, at least that's when it was published. Um, and, and I will say that back even back in 2012, uh, right at the beginning, when you're enumerating some examples of people who fit this word, you've got Ahmadinejad and, and uh, you've got Berlusconi, you've got Simon Cowell, but you also have Donald Trump. You sort of kind of saw Donald Trump coming uh, back when you wrote this book. But one word that it exists more now than it did in 2012. And in fact, it exists in such profusion that it's starting to lose its meaning. It's the word troll. Um, and a troll is somebody who intentionally evokes some of the reactions that also an A-word uh, evokes in us. But the A-word doesn't necessarily know that he's doing that. He's doing it for his own complicated and pretty walled-off reasons. Whereas a troll gets his his or her jollies from making us mad, right? And I'm wondering about somebody like uh, Ann Coulter, whether she falls into that latter category. D- d- is she so incredibly entitled that she doesn't see how provocative she's being? Or is her provocativeness ultimately her raison d'etre? Yeah, I, I mean, a lot of a-holery in politics in, involves trolling, um, for sure. And, and Coulter is something of a pioneer uh, for that. Um, you know, I mean, she's trolling, trolling the left, as it were, to satisfy a certain kind of demand for red meat or tribal politics on the right. Um, you know, and the goal is to sort of continually, continuously say more and more provocative things to show that it's possible, show that, uh, that you can, that you can defend it. Um, so, I mean, and that's obvious. And Trump, for example, now has, has done that to a much greater degree. And But, uh, you know, it's a much more common uh, phenomenon in politics. Uh, trolling, I think, I mean, it, it, as tied to Internet use, it's it, there's often a holery involved. But there is an ideology associated with trolling that maybe in principle 
maybe has a case, and that has to do with the anonymity of the internet. Um, so the idea is that because on the internet, um, there's no way really of knowing whether you know anyone's identity or whether anything that's said could be attributed to the person. The thought is that people who adopt the usual norms of sincerity and disclosure in conversation are, are just sort of misunderstanding the nature of the conversational relation. And so the troll thinks that they can say things and, and sort of pick on people and try to get a rise out of them, get lulls from them. Um, but they're doing that as a way of trying to teach them the ways of the, the of this new <laughs> territory, you know, the new wild Internet West, I guess, um, in which anonymity and sincerity don't matter. Truth doesn't matter. Um, um, you know, there's other sort of purposes of, of engaging. So, I mean, at least there's an argument there that there's a type of um, new type of social terrain such that you can sort of engage in troll-like conduct or say, at least say things that would otherwise not be okay, but but justifiably. So, you know, one other thing that really intrigued me here uh, looking at this is that, you know, we can talk about people in politics. We can talk about people in the media. Uh, I will say right now that I was on commercial radio for 16 years, and I was much more of an A-word than there's a way in which you are rewarded for that. You are encouraged to do it uh, by your bosses. Um, but also, I discovered that um, uh, that Aaron James, uh, someone was teaching your book here in Connecticut at Southern Connecticut State University. There may be lots of other places here in Connecticut where people are teaching your book, which is A-words a theory. Um, and when she assigned papers, m- most of the students wrote about Kanye West. Uh, I mean, they could write about anybody they wanted to. A couple of them uh, picked more political targets, uh, including a former governor uh, of ours who's been sentenced to prison twice. But um, but most people, most young people, that was sort of their default setting for A-words. And to me, that's an interesting thing because in the arts, you know, there, you can make an argument, the sort of advanced genius argument, which is that sort of Lou Reed and Miles Davis and, and people like that, they they might be A-words, but they, they're doing it in the service of, of something else. They're so completely consumed uh, by their own pioneering genius that they're, that they're not completely uh, aware of what they're doing, but they're not, I don't know, somehow there's a differentiation I would make between them and, say, Donald Trump or or... Rush Limbaugh or somebody like that. That and, and and there's a fine line between that person and an A word. And Kanye West is probably sitting right on that line. That the difference between Kanye and maybe Miles Davis is that that Miles's obnoxiousness was a byproduct of his geniuses, whereas Kanye sometimes seems to think that being an A word is something that geniuses do, so he should do it. Um, I don't know. Does this function a little bit differently in the arts than it does elsewhere, or is it the same thing? Yeah, I think what you're saying is right. I mean, there's a lot more room in the arts uh, or maybe even sports for, I mean, we're more tolerant of A-words, not just because we forgive them because we like them or they have other merits, but because we think they sort of have a certain kind of creative privilege um, and that's justified by the the contribution they're making through their artistic, you know, products. You know, Picasso or Miles Davis um, definitely fits uh, that kind of case, uh, or maybe Steve Jobs as well. You know, you know, we love his gadgets, and uh, so we'll tolerate him parking in handicapped spaces or berating his colleagues and and things like that. Um, um, but right, so for for Kanye West, I mean, it's partly that people think, well, you know, his music isn't that great. <laughs> you know, I mean, he's talented. You know, uh, um, but you know, he's not such a great genius. Um, um, but I think if that was all it was with his case, then people would just sort of call him an A-word and be done with it. 
I mean, I think in some ways that he's sort of mastered the the new entertainment environment, the new media environment. Um, that makes him interesting. And and it's partly that he sort of reveals himself or his personality in a way that's sort of rather fascinating. Um, and that's because, you know, he's not just making brash claims that, that are sort of false or sort of attention getting. He really seems to, you know, believe that he's truly great uh, in a way that he sort of clearly isn't. Um, and his obliviousness to his own sort of merits, but then his ability to get away with it, uh, you know, with claiming them. You know, he claimed, I am God at one point. He claimed, I am Picasso. You know, he sort of aligns himself. You know, so this massive, it seems like he has this massive delusion about his about his greatness. Um, and there's a way in which that's not, we don't see that as wrong, but sort of fascinatingly human. Because how could this person, you know, be so wrong or misguided about their, themselves? I'm, um, I mean, we all know what it's like to sort of not see ourselves as the way others see, see us or... Um, feel oblivious, um, and then he displays it and trumpets it, um, you know, sort of with abandon. Well, you know, there's um, that there's that phrase, "stay in your lane," right? And and there's it's probably an overworked phrase these days, but there's it seems to me that if I'm just sitting by myself and maybe even tweeting by myself that I'm a genius or I'm Pablo Picasso or maybe I'm even tweeting as I believe Kanye did, you may be talented, but you're not Colin McEnroe. Um, you know, I'm a narcissist. Uh, uh, I'm an egomaniac. But in, in a way, I'm still kind of in my lane. I'm not causing anybody any trouble. It seems to me that Kanye gets in trouble for moments like this at the 2009 MTV uh, Video Music Awards when he felt that an award had been wrongly awarded to Taylor Swift and stepped onto the stage as she was trying to accept her award. Yo, Taylor, I, I'm really happy for you. I'm going to let you finish. But Beyonce had one of the best videos of all time. One of the best videos of all time. So they're booing him there. And, and so, I mean, to me, that raises the question, uh, Aaron James. It's kind of like um, if I'm in a word in the forest and nobody hears me. Um, uh, is that the same? It seems to me that really to be a, a, a fully realized A word, <laughs> you you have to do it with other people, right? You have to get in somebody else's lane. Uh, that there's 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 that there's a that's intrinsic to the notion is uh, I'm going to intrude on you somehow. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. I mean, one way of putting it is just that the A word is taking special advantages in cooperative life. And so it depends on the ongoing cooperation of other people to uphold the norms, uh, you know, that create the goods and practices that the, that the A word exploits. Like cutting in line depends on other people waiting in line. Otherwise, you know, you can't, you can't cut in a scrum. Um, 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 and, but aside from that, the, what's sort of especially important to us about the A word I think that's sort of a normal part of human relations is that, you know, in cooperative relations, we recognize or acknowledge each other's points of view in certain ways. We acknowledge each other's objections in particular. You know, if somebody is miffed because of um, someone taking an exception or, you know, cutting a line or seeming not to have a justification, we often address that, you know, sometimes with argument, you know, or quarrels or, uh, um, but, you know, there's a way of still displaying acknowledgement of the other person's perspective uh, and that's really important to us because even if somebody's sort of cheating um, or they're being a jerk, if they're still willing to acknowledge our, con- our concern with it and not just wall us out, 
then there's a way in which, yeah, maybe we're being cheated, but we're being respected in a, in a basic way. That is, we're being acknowledged as somebody whose complaints have to be taken seriously, you know, even if even if they don't work and not comply with. But then what's fascinating about Kanye, I think, I mean, he is engaging people, but he's sort of, he's acting as though, of course, you know, I should be able to stand up and register my view that, you know, Taylor Swift's video wasn't the best and, and Beyonce's was better. Um, um, of course, I should be able to do that. But then, um, and he seems sort of oblivious to the idea that everyone else finds this, you know, um, like, you know, absurd that, that he should have this privilege in, in such a setting. Um, right. So it's, it's not just that. So it is sort of his, his very public um, disregard for what other people uh, will think um, that makes him sort of interesting. It makes him offensive, um, but it also makes him fascinating because, you know, almost no one even thinks to sort of <laughs> disregard people's perceptions in that way, you know, and it takes a well, special kind of shamelessness to do it. Somebody does. Somebody thinks, somebody else thinks that. And we do, Aaron James, we're talking to the philosopher Aaron James, uh, author of the book um, uh, A-Words, a a theory, uh, and another book that we're going to come to right now because we have to talk about the big orange elephant in the room. So let's hear him. I also happen to call him a lightweight, okay? And I have said that. So I would like to take that back. He's really not that much of a lightweight. And as far as, and I have to say this, I have to say this, he hit my hands. Nobody has ever hit my hands. I've never heard of this one. Look at those hands. Are they small hands? <laughs> And he referred to my hands. If they're small, something else must be small. I guarantee you there's no problem. I guarantee. All right. Well, obviously, it was shooting fish in a barrel. We've got to pick a million different clips. Uh, he's the president-elect of the United States. Uh, your sort of sequel book uh, is A Words, A Theory of Donald Trump, um, written before the uh, election results were known. But but one of the one of the premises you have, Aaron James, is that there isn't a substantial debate about whether this word applies to him. Although, I mean, it would be relatively easy for me to go out and find adherents of his who would emphatically reject, reject the application of that word uh, to Donald Trump. I've talked to lots of them during this campaign. But, you know, it's been more the case that there's a sense in which he's the A word we need right now. So what's your underlying theory of that? Yeah, I think that, um, I mean, in general, uh, a words can be a force for good. I mean, I mentioned um, Steve Jobs before, or you know, or sim similar to the artist Picasso. Or, you know, um, in some cases we think maybe they do have special privileges or creative uh, prerogative. And in other cases, though, if they're a force for good, we sort of just forgive uh, what would otherwise be uh, wrong. So there definitely are taking privileges that they're not entitled to that are unwarranted. Um, but we we readily forgive the discretion. Now this kind of Forgiveness is very, very common in politics in general, you know, on all sides. And, you know, it's sort of a question of what defines your your party identification is sort of who you're willing to forgive, what kinds of mistakes or wrongs or whatever. I mean, I mean, forgiveness presupposes that there is a wrong involved, that, that, that people are doing things they're not entitled to. Um, and so I think, you know, that's that's a very common thing with with Trump. Um, I don't I think that. A lot of his supporters think, well, yeah, of course, of course, he's an A-word. You know, he's doing things that are unacceptable, but but he's going to be a force for good. They think he's going to be a force for good um, in, you know, 
sorting out a corrupt political system, of, of removing gridlock, uh, and things like that. And it's not that those things, the things he's doing are really justified. It's not that we want the things he's doing to be the new normal state of being for anyone. Um, we want him to, if something, just to hold this sort of special temporary place um, um, for these other uh, benefits. Uh, and so I think that's a way of being sympathetic to a lot of his supporters who think that, um, you know, he's the A word we need. He has a larger uh, a larger justification. I mean, that's a very risky strategy. And my criticism of it is that it's incredibly risky and dangerous a strategy and not going to be worth the gamble given the stakes to uh, to our democratic republic um, by basic small r republican principles um, and it's not a conservative idea either so that's my objection so the argument is what really um, addressing the argument that trump is a force for good or could be or can be hoped to be a force for good sort of on its own terms the the mere idea that he's in a word isn't supposed to settle the matter and, and uh, well, actually, we should take a break. I want to add, uh, uh, this should be a two-hour show, actually. There's so much to say about A-words. But uh, I want to add Dan, Dan Jones to this conversation. So let's grab a break here so we don't run out of time, and we'll be back. 1967 Cadillac Eldorado convertible. Hot pink with a whale skin hubcaps and all other cow interior and big brown baby seal eyes for headlights. Yeah! And I'm going to drive around in that baby at 115 miles per hour, getting one mile per gallon. Sucking down quarter pound of cheeseburgers from McDonald's in the old-fashioned non-biodegradable styrofoam containers. And when I'm done sucking down those greaseball burgers, I'm going to wipe my mouth with the American flag. And then I'm going to toss the styrofoam containers right out the side. And there ain't a midnight thing anybody can do about it. You know why? Because we got the bomb. That's why. Two words. Nuclear. You ever hear the saying, you run into an in the morning, you ran into an You run into all day. You're the What? That was the great Raylan Givens, uh, played by Timothy Oliphant uh, in Justified. We had to bleep the word four times. I hope the message came through, though, that if you run into one of these people once, uh, you ran into one of them. If you run into them all day, chances are you're the A-word. All right, so this is the conversation we're having with Aaron James, a philosopher and author of A-Words, A Theory and Its Follow-Up. A-Words, A Theory of Donald Trump. He's joining us from the studios of KUCI at the University of California, Irvine, where he's a professor and chair of the philosophy department. Uh, Joining us now is Daniel Jones, uh, an assistant professor of psychology at the University of Texas at El Paso and an expert in antisocial personalities. So um, Daniel Jones, um, uh, elsewhere in his book, uh, Aaron James says that uh, the A-words will always be with us. And I'm assuming, based on your research and theory, that you would kind of agree with that, that maybe there's even a wiring that goes back uh, to our time on the grasslands of Africa, that in hunter-gatherer societies, you can't have everybody be wonderful, super cooperative uh, Unitarian pastors, that, that somehow or other you need a distribution of personality types? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I would argue. I would argue entirely that's true. And and it started with a paper published in 1995 by Linda Mealy, arguing that antisocial personalities or cheater strategies um, form what's called the frequency dependent selection. And basically, what that means is if you have too many cooperators in a given environment, it just becomes too darn beneficial to be a cheater. Um, the one minority cheater, uh, not saying that minority ethnically. I'm talking minority, uh, meaning not the majority of the strategies. The one uh, type of cheater out there um, would 
just do too well in a group of cooperators. But as the cheater population grows, then it becomes too beneficial to be a cooperator. And so there's forever a balance that gets formed between cheaters and cooperators in any given society. And uh, they'll be with us forever because as long as there's cooperation, that means there's a link that can be exploited by people who are dishonest. Um, Aaron James, is that pretty much your understanding of it? I, I know, I think it's the Hegelian prelude chapter where you say they will always be with us. Yeah, I guess this is maybe I wanted to add a world historical <laughs> wrinkle. <laughs> maybe this is Hegel's spirit. Um, but, I mean, that might be true. Something like that might be true about some definition of cheating or antisocial personality. But those are very vague terms. Yeah, there's all kinds of social deviancy that falls under that, you know, including psychopathy, psychopathy or um, not necessarily being the a-hole, um, which is a sort of I think of as a fairly special and relatively new type. I don't know if it's a new type, but our concept of it is relatively new. And in some sense, I think that it reflects sort of the background progress of civilization. Um, I mean, uh, so in the past, the sort of antisocial behavior might have been a lot worse than what we now see from from a-holes. But as civilization has, has improved, as, you know, social norms have developed and, you know, become more inclusive or better enforced or people are more civil or more cooperative, which I think is true for sure on a, on a broad sort of historical sweep of things, um, then it becomes sort of we have a more fine-grained sense of what counts as what counts as cheating, what counts as uncooperative. Um, and um, there, the thing that's always true, I think, is that there are always going to be gray areas in cooperative life. There's always going to be ways to take advantage of opportunities that the gray areas create. There's always going to be, um, and and maybe it's true, as, as suggested, that there are always sort of potential for equilibria between different forms of cooperation and non-cooperation. Well, um, let, me, let me have um, Daniel Jones get more specific, too. Okay, so um, the word, the A word is not anywhere in the DSM-5, as far as I know. Uh, however, there are words, uh, I think, that help and that correspond uh, or map pretty well onto what Aaron James talks about. Uh, I don't, I'm not uh, a clinician, so I don't really know exactly what narcissistic personality disorder is, but I know what narcissism is anyway. And Daniel Jones, I assume a lot of what we're talking about does fall somewhere within the rubric of narcissism. Oh, absolutely. Um, as a matter of fact, the three most popular, uh, I shouldn't say popular, but most studied personality traits when it comes to harming others is, has been referred to as the dark triad of personality, which consists of psychopathy, Machiavellianism, and narcissism. Um, and what binds these personalities together, what links them, is a, is a common theme of being callous towards others and being manipulative towards others. So they have no affinity for the truth, and they don't particularly care about you. And as a result... Um, they exploit other people to their own ends. They're very selfish types of individuals, but they go about it in very different ways. So as you articulate narcissism, which you don't have to have narcissistic personality disorder to display some traits associated with narcissism. Uh, you can study these traits on a continuum. And so the more you have of the particular trait, the more, you add, the more there are certain outcomes that can be predicted by that trait. And so, yeah, narcissism, what makes narcissism unique is a never-ending focus on social praise, a never-ending focus on being worshipped, being superior, being seen uh, um, as a person of, of uh, agentic merit, um, which different, is different from, say, Machiavellianism, where they're focused on bottom-line goals, instrumental outcomes, financial outcomes. Um, if they have to, you know, engage in a behavior that may make them look in the long run, um, a certain way, uh, according to social praise, they're not that interested. They're interested in getting the job done. And then, of course, the psychopathic individuals are very um, 
blunt, coercive, aggressive, and they're driven by immediate gratification. I, I don't care what happens to me 10 years down the line, even 10 days down the line. I want this now, and I'm going to engage in a behavior that gets it now. But the common theme, as you see across all these three, all three of these personalities, is that they're in it for themselves. And so I think when we talk about the A word, um, all three of them would engage in, in <laughs> you know them long enough, you're going to call them that. Um, but they've done, they've gone about it in three completely different strategies. But it seems to me that Aaron James, the closest one for you, uh, if there's one size that did fit all, would be narcissism. And many of the things that Daniel Jones is talking about fall into a term that you use, amour propre, which is that sort of notion of um, needing love from oneself, but only being able to get love for oneself from the the uh, approbation of other people, right? People have to set me above all others. I have to be first among equals or not equal at all for me even to achieve the kind of self-love that I desperately need. Yeah, that's a nice statement of it. I mean, this is a, I mean, maybe there's a point here about what the philosopher is trying to do as opposed to the usual psychological uh, checklist for these types. I mean, they aren't usually offering definitions for the types. They're sort of a sort of a long list of um, traits, right, that somebody could have to different degrees, and then you're sort of scoring somebody on an overall um, basis. And so narcissism you know, works with these different characteristics, and you can be high or low in, in, uh, along these different traits. And, and similarly for these other types. But so for me, that cuts across and doesn't really capture um, the type, the A-word, or the type, the jerk, or you know, lots of other uh, types, which have their own sort of nature, their own social structure, their own definition, their own personality uh, dynamics. So to take narcissism, for example, um, I mean, somebody can be a narcissist, I think, and still um, function for the public good without a sense of uh, entitlement that they're willing to defend against, you know, any charge. So there may not be an A word. In fact, a lot of the great, you know, public figures are probably were narcissists to, 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 to a relatively high degree. Churchill comes to um, mind. Uh, yeah, Churchill, sure. And it's partly what, you know, what explained how they could be so successful, how they could, um, you know, uh, weather the kinds of uh, abuse that you you take in doing that or, you know, um, or or bend what rules that had to be bent at the time to, you know, make things. Um, or similarly, at narcissism, I think somebody can have a sort of persistently lower sense of wor- self-worth that might meet, le- make them completely obsessed with themselves and how they appear in the eyes of the others. And sort of have a very fragile ego, um, but they may not act out or be rude or um, or take special advantages. They might not be out in the open. They might not be brazen. So they may not be an A-word either. All right. I want to just jump um, in here and get uh, Daniel Jones back into this conversation. So one of the questions I think people have as they listen to this is they, is they think, all right, so— uh, most people listening to this assume that they are not A-words, that they are not narcissists. Uh, it kind of tends to be the kind of thing you don't recognize about yourself. But they do want to survive in an environment where they may be subjected to this kind of behavior. So, and, and I think a lot of it tends to, uh, a lot of the answer, correct me if I'm wrong, tends to have to do with who's ultimately at the top of the food chain. Because uh, if you're if there's not an A-word at the top of the food chain, then documenting narcissistic behavior would be a really good strategy because you could eventually show it to somebody who's not one of these people. Uh, on the other hand, if that's who's at the top of the food chain, you've got to find some other strategy. Um, is there one? Well, uh, there's no one type at all uh, strategy. And, I, and, and I, I do want to address the issue that uh, uh, these individuals can be pro-social, and that absolutely is true. Everything that needs to be studied in psychology needs to be studied by person, by situation, interaction. Um, 
And I think that um, getting to your question of, of kind of dealing with who's at the top and how to, how to um, address that, there's recent evidence, and we've been working on this in my laboratory, there's recent evidence that if you can get a narcissistic individual to take your perspective, it actually imbues them with a little bit more empathy and a little bit more curtailing of their exploitative strategies. Um, now, this is very, very new evidence that's, that's been, uh, we're working on it in our lab and some other labs have been working on this. Um, so ingratiating oneself to the narcissist may be a, a sound strategy, especially if they're at the top um, of the food chain, as you put it. Um, but the one thing that I want to emphasize is that while narcissistic strategies may get you ahead in the short run, they ultimately cost you a great deal in the long run because they're exaggerating their skill set. They're exaggerating um, pretty much everything that's positive about themselves, and that catches up with you over time. And there was a paper published in 98 that shows by Del Paulus that shows um, while narcissistic individuals are really well-liked, more head and shoulders above other people in the first couple of weeks of knowing them, by the time two, three months had gone by, not only did they fall back to where everybody else is, they were far below everybody else in likability. Um, so you, I do think that um, narcissistic strategies get you somewhere in the short run, especially if they're narcissistic individuals at the top, but it may cost you in the long run. So Aaron James, you know, as Daniel Jones is talking, I'm thinking, oh, somebody who uh, vastly exaggerates uh, his good qualities. Um, I, I, everything that he was describing sounded very familiar to me in terms of the current political scene. Um, but it seems to me that we have uh, one advantage over the A word, which is that we know what he is and he doesn't. Um, and, and that to a certain degree, particularly through that notion of amor propria, um, that we have a tremendous advantage, which is that that person is fundamentally manipulable. If you can understand what it is that he's looking for, I don't know, Gail Collins in, in covering this race said that if the crowds at the rallies had been cheering wildly uh, about uh, gardening topics, uh, Donald Trump's campaign would have been more about mulch and less about immigration, uh, that ultimately what he wants is, is adulation. And he, he's not that fussy about how he gets it. So is the blindness of the A-word uh, something that, that provides an advantage to maybe somebody seeking to prevail? Um, I think it does. Uh, and it's it may be important for the future of human civilization <laughs> in the current situation. But a small point is I don't think that the A-word uh, will necessarily be unable to see or admit that they are an A-word. Um, um, they might say, "Yeah, I'm an A word, and I'm I'm proud of it." Right, um, um, but whether that makes it, it wouldn't make any difference. That recognition, I think, sort of the test for being an A word. Uh, well, if there is a test, uh, is you know whether it would cause you a lot of concern and consternation in the thought that you are one. I mean, if you would really find it upsetting and feel ashamed and um, want to moderate your behavior in the thought that you are one, um, then that's at least evidence that you're not um, the person who sort of shrugs and says, "Okay, yeah, fine, I'm an A word." Um, that so what? Um, um, that's you know that's the kind of thing Hayworth would think. Um, but I so but that doesn't mean it makes any difference. To sort of to point it out. Um, but I think depending on the type of error we're talking about, and this is what's relevant to the person, the sort of more narcissistic type um, who's just interested in adulation, whose sense of their their own worth and their identity depends on praise from others. Um, they are there's a way in, as it were, um, to get them to listen. Right? They won't listen if it's just sort of straight moral complaints about uh, what they are or not entitled to do. That they just wall out. But if you can sort of address their way that they see their own self, sense of worth, um, 
and align it with say the common good then then yeah that can work so for example um uh obama may as we speak be attempting to realign uh trump's um sense of of his own value as a president right with aligning with the good of the country um on various other kinds of demands of the office and things like that um and i think that really really might work and i mean Insofar as every president has cared about their popularity, uh, you know, and their their poll ratings and public opinion and their legacy and things like that, uh, you know, that's certainly the kind of thing that Trump, for example, is going to care a lot about and start caring a lot a lot more about. So the more, um, you know, and he is fairly fluid in his views, as as the Gil Collins suggests. Uh, you know, he's not as attached to that. So if his sense is that his own greatness, his own sense of being a winner as a president. Um, gets more and more tied with uh, public opinion um, or with what's seen as respectable, um, then there's a possibility of, of, of a lot of moderation and maybe even, you know, him succeeding and in, in, in accomplishing important things. Um, so I think that's a, it's a real possibility. I mean, I think it's really important, though, that the, the, the framers and the very idea of checks and balances in American constitutional republic it depends on the idea of not letting these people get into power in the first place. So, too late, I mean, they're very, very aggressive uh, <laughs> about about uh, an, an A-word management strategy of just, you know, trying to stop this happen. So there's been a failure of, of that basic strategy. Um, and now we're sort of back to last-ditch efforts. We're going to see how well the rule of law succeeds. We're going to see whether the courts or whether other institutions really have the integrity to, to stand up to an onslaught. Um you know, uh, and, you know, nobody knows whether we can really, whether sort of a democratic republic is going to survive after this. But, you know, because it is sort of now, um, you know, an all hands on deck situation, um, I think it's at least a good thing that you have this <laughs> way in, way in via, you know, his own sense of his of his worth. Absolutely. This, least, OK, I got to pause you there because yeah. we're going we're to run out of time and I got to get um, uh, into the next segment with Henry Alford. So we're going to take a break. We're going to come back with more of our topic which is A-words, after this. Today's show was produced by Jonathan McPants and me, Kyone Wolf, with help from Bill O'Reilly, Miles Davis, Roger Ailes, and Gordon Gecko. The part of Bill Curry was played by Ernest Hemingway. Never miss an episode. Subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, or TuneIn. On tomorrow's show, people who are cut off from shore for a long, long time. And now, back to Colin. All right, so we couldn't possibly do this show, uh, this show which is about uh, the A word uh, and about people who are A words. Uh, we're doing this show with our uh, anchor guest, uh, philosopher Aaron James, who's written two books about this. We had to have Henry Alford. Henry Alford is an investigative humorist and the author of. Well, before I say that, it's a it's a crime that we're not having Henry on for the full hour because I know he could fill it uh, talking about this. Uh, uh, Henry Alford is an investigative humorist and the author of Would It Kill You to Stop Doing That? A guide. To modern, a guide to a modern guide to manners. So, Henry, in the title of that particular book of yours, the word "that" is kind of a placeholder uh, for "stop being an a-word." Right? Would it kill you to stop being an a-word? There's this whole range of behaviors: talking really loud on your cell phone, uh, on a crowded train, uh, that kind of thing. Uh, that's really what the "that" is, isn't it? 
It is, absolutely. It's a particle and a wave. <laughs> so one of the questions that I have is, you know, I, I could talk to Dan Jones and Aaron James about this, and they would argue, well, sort of A-words are kind of a constant. You know, they probably have been through with us all through history. Uh, probably was easier to do it in the past if you were a king as opposed to a peasant. But, you know, people—but I'm wondering whether you see certain— ways in which there's been an empowerment of A-words. I mean, cell phones, digital technology, uh, uh, Wall Street. <laughs> I mean, are there things that, that you think have sort of uh, allowed more of this to come gushing out of the pipeline? Oh, absolutely. I mean, yeah, if you look at the at the Internet and then, no, the stuff that you guys were saying about Kanye really rings true, that that within the culture of entertainment, yeah, a lot of these um, these values are just totally glorified, and 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 people are rewarded for that. So, people watching a movie like Wolf of Wall Street, you know, two thirds of the audience, I hope, realize this is a bunch of a words. You know, DiCaprio <laughs> is an a word, and Jonah Hill is an a word, and Matthew McConaughey with his kind of initiatory speech at the luncheon, he's an a word. That chest thumping moment. But there's a certain percentage of the audience that's probably going, oh, that'd be pretty cool to be those guys. Yeah, no, and that, I mean that's the problem too. Is that a dramatic character is necessarily uh, someone who has really vivid behavior, and that could absolutely be a whole behavior. So, as as a manners expert and investigative humorist, what do you have? To, do you have a toolbox for us? Do you have anything you can give us? I do. Yeah, I, you know, I think there's a traditional method, and I think there's a street method. The traditional method, as any conflict resolution expert will tell you, is you, you do a lot of active listening, where you're paraphrasing what they say, where you're doing emotional labeling. You say conciliatory things like, we'll have to agree to disagree. You apologize, even if you don't have to. Uh, you employ what's called track to diplomacy, where you bring in people from outside the conflict to build trust and confidence. So what's the street method? The street method is, I, you know, I used to have a, a boss who was a casting director. So this was someone who was negotiating deals all day long. And her mantra was, bully a bully, con a con. Mm. So what I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to extend that to a-hole and a-hole. <laughs> I don't think that you need to actually be a jerk, but I think that you can sort of metaphorically flex your muscles uh, like one way you can do this is at the top of your encounter with this person, I think you can simply announce, I will be videotaping this encounter for later adjudication. <laughs> oh, yeah. I suppose this, the cell phone is our friend here. So right? That, I mean, putting cameras on cops didn't really take, but that doesn't mean you can't be your own personal RoboCop. Um, you know, as we close here, um, and by the way, we have to have a longer conversation about this uh, at some point. Henry uh, Henry Alford, uh, author of, among other things, Would It Kill You to Stop Doing That? A Modern God to Manners. Um, Aaron James, we only have about two minutes left. And, and um, I, I do want to sort of say that in a way, there's a moment where I think your argument splits a little bit for me. Uh, and, and to the extent that some people are just personally A-words, 
I feel some obligation to treat them as gifts from God, that it's possible to believe that the most difficult people have the most to teach us. And then to whatever extent you make a more Rawlsian economic justice argument that involves the monopolization of resources, I feel some obligation to challenge those people and to see them brought down and to stand with the poor. I don't know. Can you react to that a little bit? I mean, to me, it seems like there are two different responses depending on what the overall impact of the particular A word is. Right. You might think of them as two different problems. There's the problem of uh, personal A-word management because everybody has an A-word in their life that they're stuck managing. And then, you know, you've got to find an appropriate strategy to, you know, if you can't just avoid them entirely, you have to find some way of getting along without constant frustration uh, or feeling, you know, depressed and powerless or lashing out in an unpredictable fit of rage or, you know, a fruitless fight to out A-word, the A-word, um, um, uh, but so finding the right kind of retaliation or something like that, as suggested. But then there's the societal problem of of a word management, where it's not so much this or that a word, but the problem of a, a dominant cultural message that a a a holery works, um, and that's the way you should do it. You should teach your kids to be that way. That's the way to get ahead in life. You should go to school. You should choose careers and behave within the careers in this way. And then the opposite side of it is cooperative people whose cooperation is needed to uphold social cooperation and have things work out relatively fair, relatively decent way. Those people just, you know, maybe give up. Maybe some switch sides. Others just aren't any longer willing to sort of do their part, make the sacrifices that are necessary. And that leads to a broader kind of social decline um, or, you know, and failure, not both in justice and in instability and, you know, almost any standard, even basic standards of, you know, success by in a capitalist economy. Um, the society can start falling apart. So, I mean, there, there are two different problems. And the other needs institutional and cultural solutions, whereas personally, you know, it's more a matter of trying out different strategies and seeing what works in, in, a, in a particular case. All right. We have to stop right there. We've been talking to Aaron James. His books include A-Holes, A Theory, and A-Holes, A Theory of Donald Trump. Thanks to everybody. I think we did this without you know, getting thrown off the air or fined or anything like that. So every day is a little miracle. You know what? I am an You're right to break up with me. You deserve someone who really listens, who prioritizes you, who says hello and goodbye mindfully and sincerely. I'm sorry for everything I put you through, Kyone. I really am. Thanks for giving me a shot. Ugh, what an... Check, please.